0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly.
1: Welcome to the Unlearned Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Daniel Alasalde. Now, Daniel has over 20 years' experiences working in industries from manufacturing to aerospace and energy. He's actually built more IoT products than anyone I know, working in small organizations, startup, and coaching to his current role as VP and head of IoT for North American for Ericsson. You know, I found Daniel's work mainly through the courses he teaches both at Stanford and the IoT decision framework that he created. I was building a connected coffee machine at the time and looking for inspiration. And this is how I found his work, which I found extremely helpful when I started to think about the convergence that goes into IoT connectivity. So many different components bring it to life, whether it's the data, the sensors, the machine learning to process all this data. There's a lot to learn. We're still learning. And in some respects, many people don't believe a lot of these technologies are really leveraging the way they could be. So I was delighted to have Daniel on the show to ask him what he's learned along the way, way back from the early days to now. So, as we get started, let's hear a little bit about what was his sort of way into this field.
0: I always tell the joke that I've been doing IoT before it was cool. Uh, so, I fell a bit kind of by accident because the way it happened for me is that my first job out of college was at a company doing industrial automation. And we were putting some systems in manufacturing facilities to acquire a lot of the test data. So, we had the hardware and we had the software have the connectivity, we have the analytics, and that's really what we call IoT today. It just didn't have that name before. And I really liked that idea of technology that connects the software with the physical world. And I just happened to continue to be on that path of working on companies that were doing solutions for aerospace, military, manufacturing. And so my experience kind of took me that way, And I had the opportunity to lead products from a hardware perspective, from an embedded perspective, from a cloud perspective, from a front-end perspective. So I have all the different pieces. Later, I moved to Silicon Valley and I started working at a startup. And it was a very cutting-edge startup doing energy storage solutions. And it had the hardware, the software, communication. So it was an IoT solution. And at that point is when I started hearing a lot about the IoT concept. And I was like, wait, that's exactly what I've been doing. And so at that point, I started to catalog the way I do things and, and put a name to things. And that's where I created frameworks and approaches to do that out of necessity, out of the need to having to communicate this information within my company, with my teams to, to get work done. And I had the opportunity then to start teaching at Stanford University. And so I started teaching professionals in Silicon Valley that wanted to get into this field or were working on these types of applications that didn't know all the components And so that has been my journey. And after that, I I became an independent coach, just like yourself. And, you know, I know each other for a while, and I've been looking up to your work for a while, right? It's one of my inspirations to become a coach and do the kind of things we do. And that was all on IoT strategy. And then about a year and a half ago, I joined Ericsson, thanks to an introduction that you made to the hiring manager, right? This is how things go around. And I've been uh VP head of IOT for Ericsson for about a year and a half now. And so all the different pieces have led to this. And I think once I found my niche, I, I really like this idea of physical things, producing data connected through software for this multiple
1: industries. So that's how I ended up here. I love it. Absolutely love it. One of the things I'm really interested to ask you then is, like you said, you've been in this field from, you know, it's Genesis. What have been some of the key things you've had to unlearn throughout your journey? You know, can you think of a few moments where maybe even in the classic software paradigm, the things were different as you started to look at connectivity and IoT and analytics or that convergence of using data and hardware and sensors and machine learning? And we may talk about these terms today. And I think even today, they're not that well understood. But you're like literally in at the sort of, rubber band and sticky tape stage of this stuff where people are like, nothing's going to work well together and be connected. So what were some of your insights, you know, as you reflect back and how you've seen, you know, the sector sort of evolve over the last couple of years? Yeah, it's it's a great question though, because when I started
0: to do this in the early days, it would take us a year to put together a system that acquired a couple of sensor data points and you can actually plot them on a graph, right? And one of the things that you can see from technology today is that there's been so much advancement in technology and investment from companies and make this easier that now a high school student in half an hour can buy a $30 device from Amazon and do the same thing in half an hour. And so the technology has advanced so much that now it's actually somewhat easy. It's not a technology problem anymore. So from the unlearning perspective, it's always have to be, Peeling back the onion and saying, "You know what? I don't need an en- a 50 people engineering team to do this, right? Or this should take a year. No, actually, now it takes two months. And you have to adapt your product psyche to know, hey, not only what do we have to build today, but also what's coming. And in six months, it's going to be different, right? And we, we're going to talk a lot about things that are coming, also that are real now, like AI and 5G. And so it's always learning what you can do today, and then." a year later unlearning it so that you can actually take advantage of what the technology
1: curve is taking you, always with the focus of adding value to the customer, right? It's so fascinating to me, right? Because I think technology is such an accelerator of unlearning in many respects. Like a lot of the methods that worked in classic software development paradigms, now we roll forward six months and the way you leverage these exponential technologies is radically different from the way you may have built software previously. I'm seeing this massively a lot at the moment working with companies, especially around machine learning capabilities, right? You've software engineers that want to like break down problems, figure out the ideal solution to get there and test it and then launch it. Where when you have a technology like machine learning, you're actually not working on the solution anymore. Your role is much more about describing the goals that you're trying to aim for, the values and constraints on which the system will operate within. And then the model actually figures out what's the optimal path. And and it runs millions of scenarios to find out what's the ideal solution and comes back with its probability for what it believes to be the best. You know, that's a radically different way to build systems than your classic sort of software engineering paradigm. And, And yet most people are sort of stuck in this sort of current condition of what they understand. So what were some of the steps that you sort of found you caught yourself as you were sort of on learning your way through this process, or what were some of the signals? Because it must be extremely difficult to be thinking about like le- integrating with legacy systems, building for today, and then thinking in six or eight months time, you know, you're gonna have this radically new technology that's actually gonna change the paradigm again. So how do you manage those sort of different ambiguities when you're, you're building these products? It's a really difficult thing. And I'll tell you my, my story.
0: The context of that story is that we're all trying to figure it out, right? Nobody actually has solved this challenge, right? So if anybody comes to your podcast and say they've solved it, run away,
1: right?
0: Yeah, I never believe of- anyone who says there's <laughs> one
1: answer to it all either. That's great. Yeah.
0: But I think one of the things that I have unlearned in this journey is that if you think about how we used to make products 10 years ago, it was somewhat similar to the progression of the computer in that it was these siloed systems, very monolithic, and then they started to be componentized and then distributed. So you can do the same parallel from the companies and the business models because 15 years ago, one single company would try to do that whole thing, would try to do the hardware, would try to do the embedded software, would try to figure out their own communication, et cetera. And of course, with the speed of change in the world, By the time you build all that stuff, the market has changed so much that you're obsolete. And so we're seeing that breaking a part of the solution into the company that specializes in the hardware, the company that specializes in the AI models, the company that specializes in the connectivity like Ericsson. And so the game from a product management perspective is to unlearn how to manage a monolithic product towards how do you actually build a collaborative product among multiple companies. And then for the end customer, they get a black box. They don't care how you build it. But it's the challenge for the product manager to figure out how do you actually bring all these partners together? How do you actually make the business model high profitable enough that you can actually have something to share with all the different parts of the ecosystem? And so building that has been a really interesting thing. And that's the only way you can keep up because this is so complex. That one company cannot do it all.
1: It has to be together. And so it's a new way of working. I just think that's an absolutely fabulous insight for people. That paradigm where you had to be number one in your market, in-house, everything, best in all different fields, but shifting to this more sort of federated idea of who are the best people we can plug into, different APIs to leverage. We don't have to be experts in everything. We'll learn as we do. I think that's a really powerful insight for people to take away. You're sort of still like living this all the time, right? Like you've, you've worked in uh, startups, as you said, you're now in Ericsson, which is like a you know, massive global organization. What have been some of the things you've noticed about bringing both innovation, say in, to this in a smaller startup context, right through to these massive, like you know, 100,000 plus organizations? Like what have you seen again as some of the differences in doing both of those types of roles?
0: As I reflect back to my times in startups, and then I think about what it takes to drive innovation at a company like Ericsson, I've had to unlearn a lot of the patterns that, that make you successful in one area, but they just don't apply in the other one, right? So for example, when you're in a startup, it's very focused because they're only doing the one thing and you're chasing that. And in order for you to gain momentum, you have to convince, you know, if you're in a leadership position, maybe the CEO and a couple of other C-level people, and that's it, you can get them in a room and you can move forward, right? So that agility that people talk about startups, even though it doesn't feel like that when you're in the actual startup, right? But when you're outside, you can really understand that. It's something that is ingrained in the way I do work. But then when you take that mentality and you go to a large corporation, the way you actually get things done in a large corporation is very different. And so the moment you start doing a specific project, there is hundreds of people that you have to involve, that you have to convince. The first meeting is about. How do you do the governance? How do you do this? How do you do that? And so you're always struggling with the learning and unlearning from like a startup. You can move fast, but you can't get very far because you don't have the resources and the reach. In a large corporation, you have the money to do all those things. It just moves a lot slower, but when it actually gets traction, it goes a lot farther. But the skills that you need in order to influence and get things done at a big corporation are things that I've been having to learn. I had never worked at a company this big. And so it's something that has been really fascinating for me for my professional growth to do these kind of things. Because as I was a coach in between startups and Ericsson, I advised a lot of executives on how they should be doing this. But then I would, I would go back home and I'd let them to do it, right? But now it's like me, I deliver the PowerPoint. What do you, what do you mean? You, I still have to follow through, right? So. Those are all the, the learnings. And it's been fascinating to not fully unlearn everything, but like take the pieces that work and just try
1: to adapt. That's a great story. And as authentic as you are, like i <laughs> really sharing that, you know, but it is true. It's very different to give advice versus like to lead, actually to put, like to drive, to change through. It's one of the things I often reflect on as well, that it's it's always important to be practicing what you're doing as much as what you're uh, advising other people to do, because you, you work those muscles, as you sort of describe. And Stephanie, one of my concerns often I find is that I'm sitting there going, Well, am I spending too much of my time giving advice and not enough time taking action? Right? It's, mm-hmm. it's actually one of the reasons I like being on boards of startups or actually having side projects, or with so many of these technologies we're talking about, like, you can't read about them and understand them. You have to build things, you have to understand the constraints of a, of a machine learning model. You have to understand that certain sensors don't work well and it's hard to gather data from them. I, this isn't stuff, I think, these technologies that you can read about in a book or in a blog post on Medium and have three points to be an you know, IoT developer and use machine learning. Like it's, just, it's rubbish, you know? I think you have to earn the hard yards, which I know you have. I love what you're sharing then again about the differences, about how you've both had to keep And this is what I would say about unlearning. It's not about throwing everything away. It's recognizing where you need to adapt, what skills are more important based on the context that you're in. If you knew what you knew now and on your first day, you know, a year and a half ago at Ericsson, what's the one little bit of advice you would have given yourself going in? I think the biggest advice to myself, and I try to practice that all the time, is
0: building relationships is the most important part to get things done you could be the expert on IoT in the world, or you could be the developer, or the whatever. But if you can't get things done through people, that is the biggest challenge. And it's a skill to get things done in a small group of people or in a very, very large corporation like Ericsson. And so building that as a skill and learning what we've, what we've learned and practicing those things, the technology, all those things, they come into play as you're building your bag of tricks. But Putting that focus on building those relationships and sharing your work with others so that they get to know you and they get to trust you,
1: it's the most important thing, right? Because without that, you get nothing. It's uh, so funny that you, you bring that point up. Recently on the show, we had Susan O'Malley, who's one of the senior directors at IDO, the design firm. And that was one of the things she kept talking a lot about that was so important to their design process is showing your work and building relationships with people so much of what they were trying to do when they're designing things is nobody knows it all nobody has all the answers and yet the best work is when people bring their best tools bring their humility authenticity and sort of show up and say look this is the direction we're all trying to go let's align on some outcomes that we all agree we're trying to achieve what are some of the tools and ways that we could get there let's let's share your tools I remember her saying this uh, like share the tools that you think can help us get there, and let's find the one that best fits for the problem. And I'm not sort of battling to say, no, we have to do it my way. It's like giving these options and then finding, like, which is the best option to get you there is, is a sort of core fundamental principle of their design process, their product development process. And it's really interesting to hear you describe that, both in an organizational context, about how you need to reach out to your collaborators to bring people together, to align them, Get work done, but it's so funny because I see such a parity. Also, with what you were saying about how IoT even works, like there's no Mm -hmm. one part that is going to make it work. You have to make the whole system work together. All the components have to be joined up. All the different technologies reinforcing one another to make these sort of exponential impact. So I just think it's such an interesting little parallel between both the technology idea and the people idea and bringing everything together is actually what really drives the performance. So interesting reflection for myself, just listening to you there. You know, you're obviously you know, working in these large organizations now, not only in Ericsson, but also helping thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of companies that, you know, rely on Ericsson's technology to be successful in this sort of domain. What are some of the things that you've taken away or observed from that? There's a lot of learnings that I've had in, in- Ericsson is a very unique company from the perspective that
0: it is a technology leader, right? We're the leaders in cellular and 5G. And it's a very engineering-driven company. And so one of the interesting things for me is to start introducing the ways that I know how to work, right? For better or worse, which is more about lean iterations, discovery, and figure out how those things, how can I help Ericsson unlearn the way we've done things for a long time, which is, we're going to build something and we're going to put it out there. And if it sticks, it sticks. If it doesn't, we'll try something else. Or we're focusing on a specific technology development like 5G. Well, we know that 5G is going to be purchased by the carriers and this is what it's going to be doing. So the idea of engineering first approach is very ingrained in the company. And so as I joined the company, I started working in the innovation group. I'm always looking the other way around and say, well, Desirability, feasibility, viability, right? Can we get proof, evidence that customers want this? What does this really mean? What problem are we really trying to solve? And it's been a really interesting journey for me to introduce those concepts, get some buy-in, get some aha moments from anywhere from entry-level engineers to the topmost executives to say, wow, how did you get that insight? It's like, I just asked the customer. Wow, what a concept, right? Of course, it's a lot harder than that, of course, but That transformation of of starting to think about, okay, can we include more discovery? Can we do things shorter term? And if they don't work, can we actually kill them? So that has been a really interesting journey for me to introduce these concepts and then for Ericsson to unlearn and can pick up some of these things, but for me also to understand that not one size fits all. Ericsson is considered critical infrastructure for countries. So there's some things that you have to do a certain way because otherwise, communications are down and people can get hurt. So there's also a middle ground approach that I have to learn, figure out how we meet the middle ground.
1: How do you then start to, first of all, bring these new ideas into companies? Because I think that's a really important idea to start off with, because what I continually find is that a lot of the time, companies actually don't do a lot of discovery or testing or, you know, especially in large organizations, they Even the way they're designed sort of goes against letting them do small things, testing to see what works, learn and iterate. Very recent example for me was like working with one of the largest banks in the world and they had this very big bank that has a portfolio of things going on. Now, if you want your product or your idea to be seen at that portfolio, it better be a big, big idea, just even for it to get any visibility. And then the danger is when you start pitching a big idea with a big business case and a big story and a big revenue number, and it's going to be amazing. And everyone's like standing up, shouting, cheering, go, oh, we need to build this thing. It's going to be amazing. And then you say, and the way we're going to start is we're going to build this tiny, 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 tiny little thing that that we would never almost show to customers and release that first and then see what works and what doesn't. And the shock on people's faces like, what do you mean? no, I want this big story you've told me, this big, huge launch, This, which again is counterintuitive that, yeah, you want the big vision, but you want to start small and learn what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm, and yet mm-hmm. all organizational systems and enterprises don't support that. You have a, a big business case, big governance process, takes you months to get anything into production, big releases, big bang, big failure. So what have been some of your lessons are, maybe an anecdote or two that you're obviously smiling away <laughs> to yourself. <laughs> you, know, you're, you live this every day, you know? How, how have you started to introduce like some of these techniques into the company, which again, yeah. are count, they're counterintuitive. How have you helped people sort of learn that and, and unlearn the behavior that's maybe holding them back? Yeah, so I'll tell you an anecdote and then I'll tell you how
0: I've tried because I've tried a lot of different things and I'll tell you that journey. But in terms of the anecdote, I think that I agree that Some companies are starting to think more about, yes, we can start small and we can do this thing because we want this big vision, but we want to start with this little thing. But some of these big companies are so successful and they're big that everything's proportional. So it's like, we're going to start with this little thing. We're going to give you $10 million and 100 developers so you can try something little. And it's like, that's crazy. It's like, that's more funding than most startups ever get. For the companies, it's like, I found it under the sofa here, so it's okay if we lose it, right? So for me, that has been a really interesting thing to get perspective on how big companies work, because yes, that amount of money for a large, large company, it's a rounding error. So I think it's interesting for us to also adapt and say, what is reasonably small that could get traction, but I'm not breaking the bank, right? So I've had to calibrate those
1: things a little bit. I think one of these notions of you need enough money to do something, but not enough money that you can do nothing, right? Trying to find that little sweet spot. So how have you started to introduce that notion of thinking big, starting small, both even in terms of funding and getting results? What have been some of the steps you've taken at Ericsson to make that happen?
0: I can tell you the things that do not work or have not worked for me. So I I started with, uh, well, we need to do discovery. And you have the typical responses of, well, we already know what we want, or we already tried that, or, okay. Then after I was able to convince some people with education and Okay, well, let's actually start talking to some customers. Well, it turns out that that's a skill that you have to have. And, and if you don't have it, then it's, it's not productive. And so, okay, well, let me start by training my team and bringing in coaches and doing all these things so we can do that, right? hiring consultancies that can help me do this work. But none of that was really resonating. And so recently, we just completed this first project where we just went kind of under the radar. We did the discovery ourselves, and then we presented the results as they tie into the bigger vision that we try to do. That was so well-received because people saw the value of doing discovery. They didn't see the process or they have to suffer into like, do I have to fund that? They just saw the result of what discovery could do for the team. And then they say, okay, we need more of that. And I don't care how you do it. I don't care about your, your techniques or that's your... That's your prerogative, but I need more of these types of results. And so from there, I was able to get more projects from other units to say, you know what, we want that kind of thing that you did for that product, for these other products. And it's all lean, it's all iterations, it's prototypes, it's discovery. I just do not call it that. I just hide it in the way that Ericsson speaks, and I show that result. And executives look at that, see the value. They don't care how I get there. I continue getting funding, right? So those are the different ways that I got to that point. And I'm sure every company is different, but that's what I can offer.
1: Yeah. I I just think that's such a powerful insight. You know, I often say unlearning leads with action, not words. And I think the way people actually unlearn is by taking action, by experiencing things. Anytime I see people leading with process as a way to sort of save the day, I think people just turn off. But when, when you lead with experience, right? Like, getting people to try something and they experience it for themselves, the benefits, or they realize these results, as you're sort of describing, that's where the mindset shift happens. Often too many people, I think, lead with this agile is going to save us or lean startups going to save us. But what I find with leaders is if if you can sort of get them to, don't even tell them as you have exactly done, don't even tell them what this is. It can be, It can be widget maker for like whatever you want to call it, but getting them to go through it and experience and see the benefits, get that aha moment, like the the unlearning moment. I think that's such a powerful way for people to frame this stuff up because I think it's one of the most important ways to introduce new ways of working. It's like, just don't tell people what it is. Just do it. Let them see the benefits. Mm -hmm. And exactly my experience would be the same as yours. they go, wow, this is great. What is this? Then tell them what the process might be, but get them hooked by actually experiencing the benefit of it. And that's a much powerful way to start and always leading with, we're agile, we're scrum, we're means, like They've heard these methodologies come and go all the time. And I think that's such a powerful way to actually start driving changes, that people experience the benefits and then explain to them how it works so they can do it themselves. And I think that's such a real smart way to start introducing it. You're obviously having loads of success with this now, right? You're getting, you're actually getting demand. There's pull, so to speak, for all these services now. So how are you sort of enabling, you mentioned like not every initiative inside Ericsson needs to do this. So, So how are you helping like yourself recognize like where to sort of deploy those techniques and then when you think about the other initiatives that are maybe, you know, less designed or best favorable to use some of these methods? What have you found yourself sort of introducing over there? That's a good question. And I
0: actually hadn't thought about that, but just thinking about it that right now, it gets back to one of the charters of my team, which is IoT and 5G. And the reason is because those are the emerging business areas of Ericsson. And so these types of techniques are going to help us figure out where the business is for IoT, where the growth is for IoT, and it really feels well. If I go to the R and D team that is making five G radios, they kind of got figure it figured out, right? They're the best in the world. They we already have deployments all over the world, right? So these types of techniques are not that appealing because the the problem that I would offer to solve doesn't need solving. I think it's interesting in these emerging areas where you have this challenge of Okay, now we have deployed 5G networks around the world. Now, what do we do with those networks? How can we monetize those networks? What are these new things that we can do? Well, okay, that is a perfect example to do innovation, to do lean, to do discovery, because it's all about what problems are our customers having today that we could add exponential value if they do it on top of this technology. And it's not about a technology play, it's about exponential benefits to the customer on top of our technology, right? So I think that's where, just improvising right now, that's where I think this type of techniques fit in with the company, which is also a humbling experience because what I do doesn't fit everywhere in the company, right? It's just I have my little niche and that's where I can add value and, and I'm going to stick to that.
1: You know, I think that's such a great mindset to have though, right? Like, who needs to be solve everybody's problem or run around and... You know, I think that's one of the problems that most people don't fail to recognize is where can they actually deploy their skills to the maximum? And right away, what jumps out at me is that recognition. So people know, engineers know how to build this fantastic hardware, that's awesome. Now we've got 5G networks, that's great. But I think bringing your skills to bear in, well, now we have these capabilities, what's the convergence of a customer problem with a business opportunity and leveraging technology To build something exponential, as you said. And I think that is such a powerful way to frame up this whole space for me, you know, because there's tons of technologies out there that people don't know how to leverage. You know, still whether it's blockchain, whether it's the early days of machine learning, whether it's analytics, and yet this convergence again of IoT, which is really converging data and hardware systems and sensors, and but if it's not in the service of a business problem how is it going to impact people's lives? And I think recognizing that opportunity in the company about how you can help them bring these ideas to life and build products and services and solve problems that people don't really understand what these technologies can do yet. So much of the technology adoption cycle is, hey, we've got blockchain, Bitcoin's around over 10 years and everyone's still sort of scratching their head going, how are we Mm going to leverage this thing? And There's a lot to be said there about recognizing what interventions and where you can have the most benefit, especially in these massive organizations that have massive portfolios and types of initiatives that are happening, building hardware, building new products. I think it's a really important insight for people to recognize is identifying where to have that impact and how you've sort of worked your way into finding where is the best spot for you to add value or not? And I think that's humility, right? That's really important about how to get there. You know, I cannot have you on the show and not ask about 5G because this is, is, is like the next sort of way. Well, There's so many next waves of technologies happening at the moment, but obviously Ericsson are right up there in terms of the companies that are going to bring this technology to market. So what are some of the things you're sort of excited about with this technology or some of the experiments you're starting to run and see potential signal that there's something more here than you even anticipated?
0: That's a really interesting question. And um, I think one of the things that we are realizing is the difference of 4G and 5G, right? 4G saw exponential growth because of the mobile phone. It sparked the mobile revolution. Now everybody has a phone. And the interesting thing with 5G is that it's already known that it's going to include phone and tablet support, right? Because that market is there, it exists. And one of the things that the company needs to realize is that there's gonna be growth there, but what else can you do outside of just personal phones and tablets, right? And one of the challenges, one of the things that we need to learn is that the way that you bring innovation to market when we did 4G, it was working with a handful of cell phone manufacturers and those dominate the industry. So you get those three, four companies and you get worldwide coverage. The same thing will happen with 5G, but now 5G has many other properties that enable other types of devices purpose built. So IoT type of devices for manufacturing, for autonomous vehicles, for autonomous drones, for augmented reality that you couldn't have before because you didn't have the bandwidth, the latency, those kind of things. And so now the interesting innovation is, how do you actually demonstrate return on investment for customers to actually build those applications on top of this? Not just because it's cool, but like, how do you demonstrate the actual value of doing this investment? And the second thing is, how do you enable the ecosystem to actually populate the networks of 5G? Because at this point, you're not talking cell phones, right? So if you say, okay, well, we're going to have autonomous vehicles. Well, There's no vehicle right there out there that's doing 5G already. Well, you have to work with them and have them convert whatever they're doing to 5G. Are we going to do augmented reality with drones? Well, there's no drone that does 5G today, right? So it's this thing that you, okay, you have to demonstrate value to the end consumer, either it's industrial or or consumer grade, and also to the original equipment manufacturers so that they say, you know what? If I do drones, I actually want to invest in 5G because the ROI for my customer is this, right? So us as the the main proponents of the technology, we are in that interesting intersection between, okay, providing value for the end customer, making sure the ecosystem exists because otherwise it's chicken and egg. And a lot of that has to do with what we discussed, right? Discovery, understanding the customer problems, digging down to the ROI and the feasibility of things. Because there are things that are already in my D15 IoT studio, we thought we could do with 5G and it's not technically possible yet. Okay, well, that, that was too far out, that maybe 6G, right? And so it's having that circle of innovation, that iteration of innovation, always trying to find the value for all parties involved so that your technology gets the adoption and it skies rockets.
1: You know, it's so fascinating. I feel like we're going back to the top of the conversation here. Where I was asking <laughs> you, how do you manage building for today, building for tomorrow, and months after tomorrow and this is really like the edge i think of what innovation is truly about you do have to make some bets that the return is information but that we made a bet to build a product that we think might work with this technology but it's too early that's a currency that's really valuable i would call it return on information rather than because people tend to just lock everything down to financial numbers, which is a lagging indicator, I think when you're working right on the edge of innovation, I think that currency is information. Information to either keep investing an in idea, park an idea for now, or figuring out that it's not the right idea for you to do. And that's gold. That's like IP. That's intellectual property that you're sort of building by doing this work. And I think it's so important, especially as these new technologies keep coming to market, is that leaders and execs start thinking like this, that they have to start thinking that your capability is the knowledge that you're accumulating in your organization and making good decisions based on what you're learning. And you can't learn this stuff by just sitting there reading about it. You have to do the projects. You have to make the bets to find out what will 5G work like if I'm plugging it into a Tesla and I want to see the thing run autonomously. Like, we're going to have to partner with Tesla to figure that out because both of these technologies are relatively in their infancy compared to where they're going to be in five to 10 years' time when they're maybe you know mowed up around them in the market. But you can't learn that by doing nothing. You have to do something. you have to take action, start learning what works and doesn't. and that's why the currency for me of, in- of innovation is information now and if- if leaders aren't thinking like that, they aren't thinking of this portfolio approach that you're describing, they're just going to miss out, miss the wave and, and fall further behind.
0: Mm-hmm. I completely agree. That's a really good observation. And I'll share another anecdote with you with one of the very fun things that I've experienced working at Ericsson, which is one of the companies leading 5G, is that we have anything 5G at our disposal, right? so, my team is part of the D15 innovation hub of Silicon Valley. So I lead the D15 IoT studio. And as part of D15, we have a full network lab with 5G, things that are released, things that are not released yet. With every possible combination, we can simulate whatever network in the world in our building. And so what some people don't realize when dealing with these cutting edge technologies is when you actually go out and experiment and do the prototypes, there's a lot of infrastructure that you actually need. And so working at Ericsson, having access to that infrastructure gives us a lot of flexibility to say, okay, if we wanted to try drones in a manufacturing facility doing AR, we actually have the tools to actually do that in a, in a fast way, right? Which is exciting, right? It's not just me talking about cutting-edge technology. I, I have them at my desk. I mean, when I had them. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> When we had desks, exactly.
0: Like my daughter's toys at my desk now these days.
1: Yeah, well, that's all right. I've got, you know, my new baby's hanging around him. he's on every call (laughs) from executives right down to my podcast. So it's always fun. You know, but I think these are really core insights for people to really take away. I have exactly the same sort of notion with a lot of the breakthrough innovation work that I've had the privilege to be part of is you really have to start experimenting with this stuff for yourself. You have to start trying things out, figuring out what the technology capability is, what kind of customer problems it could solve, how can you tie that back to some business model that you can actually then make that virtuous sort of desirability, feasibility, and cycle start happening, right? Because if you're waiting and pausing to find out what this technology means, you're just losing ground to the organizations that are investing and finding out what the potentials are. And, you know, so many initiatives I've been involved in, especially on exec is like you've got these execs trialing out. If I take a bit of machine learning, some analytical data and a device and plug them together, stick them on an airplane, and then suddenly actually I can realize I can turn around the time it takes an airplane when it lands to take off again, I can shave 50% of that time off. That's gold if you're in an airline. Until they start Playing with these technologies and plugging these things together, you're just not aware of the potential. And I think that's one of the huge breakthroughs I keep finding is giving people the time, the opportunity, the space, and the investment to actually go explore those frontiers and see what they could potentially mean for your business is an important part of having a good innovation portfolio. And if you're not doing that, if you're not like putting like 10, 20, 30% of your budget, whatever is important for the domain you're in to go after and explore if these technologies mean anything to you, you're in trouble. And I would ex- absolutely be expecting like 80, 90% kill rate on most of those initiatives, because if you're having a 100% success rate, you're not really actually experimenting, you're just doing innovation theater again, you know? So I think it's really important for like listeners to understand these things, that you need to make the investments to learn. You should expect that most of these things fail but you learn really fast what's the opportunity here or not and move on. When you get into that pattern and behavior, I think that's what really helps these organizations really accelerate, especially when you're working at a leading edge technologies. What are you most excited about now? Like you're, You get to play with all the toys before anyone else gets to. So you're probably not allowed to tell me exactly what's <laughs> coming up, but maybe you can tell me some of the sort of fun things you're looking forward to in the sort of weeks, years, months ahead. Yeah,
0: well, I, I definitely am very excited about the 5G rollouts worldwide because that kind of normalizes the playing field and now it opens the door for innovation, just like the internet, right? Now everybody can build on top of the internet. The, the goal is that 5G is really an innovation platform that people can build on top of. So it's not just to move data around. So I'm excited to see that percolate and be the, the new normal, right? It's going to take some time. And to be honest, sometimes I joke about these things, right? Which is, I am excited to actually see the things that we've been talking about for the last 10 years now actually happening. (laughs) So I think we are starting to get to that stage where, okay, the things that we said we were going to have 10 years ago, now we are at a point where we're starting to make sense of business models, the technology is mature enough, the market is ready, the infrastructure is being deployed. Now we're starting to enter that age of faster innovation for sure. Uh, So I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see more of the work that you're going to bring into the world at Ericsson. And, you know, obviously you're continually sharing your work either with your IoT courses and so much great blogging and so forth. So first of all, thank you for doing that. But I'm also looking forward to you continue sharing that in the (laughs) years ahead. All right. Thanks for being on the show, Daniel. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much, Barry. It's been an honor. Always great talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity.